Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Sean Cisterna, a writer, director, and producer whose films include Moon Point, Full Out, and the quietly devastating Kiss and Cry. His latest, From the Vine, stars Joe Pantoliano, Paola Brancati, and Marco Leonardi, and it's available on digital and on demand this Friday, July 10th. Sean picked Life is Beautiful, Roberto Benigni's 1997 smash about a man trying to spare his young son from the horrors of the Holocaust by telling him the whole thing is an elaborate game. Backed by the Miramax machine at its peak, the film won the Grand Prix at Cannes, took the People's Choice Award at TIFF, and rolled straight on into award season. Nominated for seven Oscars, it won three, Best Foreign Language Film, Best Original Score, and, of course, Best Actor. It was a different time. But Sean loves it, so here he is to talk about it. This is someone else's movie. Okay, well, there's a sense of dread going into this, knowing that you don't particularly like this choice <laughs> of film. So it's, it's, you know, that feeling when you get when you are so excited about a film and then uh, you're about to tell your friend and your friend doesn't respond the same way. So that's, that's the, the impending dread I feel going into this podcast right now. I have been there once or twice. Yeah, it's okay. Um, the very first episode of this podcast was Anne Donahue on, on American Hustle, which she picked because she knew I hated it. Uh, I think the theory was that if we could get through that, I could do an episode on anything. Right. Okay. Um, I don't know that I despise Life is Beautiful on the same level. I just felt like when I was sitting there in the theater in 99 that I saw through it. But, uh, and we can, we can absolutely address my, my concerns with Benini. Uh, as a storyteller, which is, I think, where it comes in. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, more importantly, tell me why you love it. Yeah. Um, Not in an adversarial way. No, just... no. Uh, well, I don't know. I was, uh, you know, I was never the most popular guy at school. So unrequited love was sort of my jam in okay. high school. So, um, you know, when I first got a girlfriend, uh, and, and this was the, the first foreign film that I ever took uh a date to so it was um a lot was riding on it and it ended up being this just this, this magical experience that we both um we both undertook and we witnessed uh you know a charming clown who who did everything for for uh the benefit of you know his wife and his, his young son so we witnessed a, a sacrificial moment in in, in film and uh, for that, you know, I look back and it always resonates as, as an important piece of work for me. I mean, it starts off very grim and, and, uh, and, and obviously very foggy. You know, Guido, the Benini character, is walking through this thick fog and, and comes across um, what we later discover will be a pile of, you know, bodies in this uh, atrocity that happens in our history. But... Uh, yeah, I mean the, the and I just remember the opening voiceover. You know, the this this unseen narrator says this is a simple story and not an easy one to tell. So, and then it just jump cuts to this uh, bright, sunny, optimistic view of Italy and and Benini traveling through uh, on a on a um, a car and where the brakes don't work and it ends up going into this comedy. So I just love how the the script is, is told in like. You know, you you could almost take the the film and cut it in half, and it's like two separate movies. It starts off with this joyous romantic comedy, and then the second half is obviously very grim and and, and dark. So I love, I love that about it as well. Yeah, I. It was hmm, we saw it at, at TIFF after it had played Cannes, so it arrived here as the Roberto Benigni Holocaust movie. So maybe that was it. The clouds were already over it to my mind. And I had interviewed Benini and Nicoletta Brasci when they came through town with uh, Johnny Steckino. Mm -hmm. And that movie is about a charming man who is mistaken for a mobster and then used in an elaborate scam and also falls in love with uh, Nicoletta Brasci because that's how Roberto Benini writes his movies. He, want, he, he wants the two of them. The way he explained it was the audience in Italy already knows that when the two of us are together, we will fall in love. So all of their movies are about that. Um, and the, the, what I actually like about Life is Beautiful is he gets the romance right up front, that it that it's not, the question isn't whether or not they will fall for each other, it's that is a given to the point where it's just a given. It's not even something they go through the motions of. I mean, his courtship is portrayed as adorable and, and, and whimsical and lovely, but, you know, she's, the, the movie has no doubt that these two are going to get together because that's not what the movie is really about. Yeah. So you the went in with that. You went in with that lens. Like I didn't know that. I you know I was eighteen at the time, and I, just, oh, yeah. I didn't know well, much I was, about Italian film history. So, 
99, I would have been 31 and much more cynical. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but also the in-between uh, Johnny Steckano and Life is Beautiful, he made a film called The Monster, yeah. uh, Il Mostro, where he plays a man who is mistaken for being a rapist and a murderer. And it felt in that film, which I did not like, Johnny Steckano's fine, but I did not like The Monster. Um, it felt like he was just trying to find a more uh, unpleasant and grating story to make a comedy out of. And, you know, he follows his muse. That's that's how it works. And having done it in Il Mostro, he decided to find an even more difficult subject matter to turn into romance and comedy. And that's Life is Beautiful because, you know, what is harder to do than the Holocaust? And I don't know that he did it consciously. I don't know that that was, you know, I'm, I'm sure he didn't think of it as this is going to get me an Academy Award or make me an international name. He was already pretty much an international name, just had a much, much larger audience in Italy than he did outside of it. But his films played, like Miramax picked them up and distributed them, and, and he was not unknown. But Life is Beautiful, to me, just... Hmm. I'm trying to figure out how to articulate it. <laughs> it's the sort of storytelling that gets my back up, because it has this weird, veiled superiority. And maybe it would be different if Benini hadn't cast himself and had, play, had let someone else play the role, but this larger sense of, of mind that he's just kind of in it as a self-aggrandizing performer, that he, he stacks the odds in a way that makes it certain that he will have a tragic, like his victory will right. be tragic and that his, his deception will, will prevail. I'm, again, we're going to yeah. go into the, we'll have to go into the ending. Uh, this is a Holocaust movie. Yeah. Um, it just, I kept wondering what the point of it all was and then stylizing, you know, the deaths of hundreds of people within the film and, you know, millions by extension that he's, he's using it all as a backdrop mm -hmm. for his antic spirit and love of life. And it just felt tone deaf to me in a way that didn't sit well. And the longer I spent in the movie, the more, um, the more impatient I was with it right. because how many times does Guido need to show us, or does Benini need to show us how much of a genius Guido is and how fanciful he is and how, how lively and, and, and amusing he is. And, you know, it, it, you start, I started thinking that this film only works if the Nazi characters are just as gentle and silly. And a couple of them are indulgent and a couple of them are not. But, you know, you, to make this movie after Schindler's List demonstrated that it is possible to convey the true horror of, of World War II and the, and the camps with a story that works in the middle of it by not backing away, by just full-on demonstrating how terrible the conditions were, you can still tell an uplifting story and you can still find... I think there is a way to tell the story of Life is Beautiful in a way that suits the tension and that, you know, death is around every corner and saying the wrong thing will get people killed or, or showing any kind of resistance will just simply end someone's life. That's missing from Life is Beautiful because he's trying to convey it as fantasy, as a memory. But what that's telling me as well is that he hasn't thought through the larger implications of the story he's telling and that this child's memories are not that bad. Like the point of the point of this fable is it's a difficult story to tell, but I have really lovely memories of the concentration camps because my dad tried really hard. If someone told you that story, you would look at them like they were insane. And that's the disconnect that I find, that it's just the, in the service of the, like each individual liberty he takes with the story makes sense within the world of the film. But if you step out for a moment, the way the film almost does when Guido finds the bodies and we're allowed to take it in. But the person telling the story wouldn't know that. The person telling that story was literally protected from that reality and Guido died before he could have ever told it. Mm -hmm. So that little thing, those, those tiny little things that tell me that Benini's not really as invested in this story as he wants to, us to believe he is. And then in the end, when he, and I guess the thing that's made it worse for me now is that the film was suddenly swept up in the much love campaign of 1999, where it became a, a front runner somehow for a best foreign language film. And, and it was, and he won best actor and, and all of that. And that's part of that is of course the, the Miramax machine is Harvey Weinstein throwing money at a thing that he thought was a winner because he was the best at that. Um, 
culminates in Benini literally standing on Steven Spielberg's chair, which is the greatest metaphor I can think of right. because that's <laughs> the only way this movie works. And it just, it was one of those things where I felt like no one else could see what I saw. And I get the, you know, especially if you're, if you're younger, the intensity of the emotion and the way that the music works to just sort of push past all of these problems. I get it. I understand that working for people, but I just I felt like I was the only one yeah. uh, who, who had a couple of questions and then just, you know, over what, 20 odd years, I've had plenty of time to yeah. stew in it. Yeah, so perhaps, I mean, it sounds like you're taking a lot of your own, perhaps, I don't want to use the word cynicism, but perhaps you are. Oh, baggage. I'm, perfect, <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm perfectly happy to say, yeah. 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 Um, and it seems like a lot of the issues you have with the film are, you know, maybe outside of the film itself. So Benini himself as a person or his past work and it ha- has yeah. an influence on the way you see the film. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, I think... Um, is that fair, though? Especially, is that fair? Is, that- well... Especially since the film is sold on Benini, I think so. I mean, he yeah. is—he is the auteur here. He writes, he directs, he stars. Um, he makes absolutely sure there is a continuity of character in all of the films he plays. There are always people who are wrongly accused or unfairly imprisoned or, or fingered for something that they didn't do. In this case, you know, Guido's not even Jewish. He's yeah. just no. It's the other yeah. way around. He is Jewish. She is he not. Is Ju- okay. So yeah. There you go. Yeah. This is unfortunately I did not revisit this as yeah. recently as I wanted to. I watched it again a little while ago when um, uh, when I, would, I I was a guest on Jeremy Lalonde's podcast, yeah. Black Hole Films, uh, which was the first one I ever did, and and um, yeah, he brought me in to just sort of puncture <laughs> the movie for the people who'd watched it for uh, for Eric Johnson and, and yeah. Jess Greco, who both really liked it, and then I showed up and just said, no, nah. <laughs> okay. Um, but, you know, I but, guess in, in studying, you know, I was a film student at the time, so we were studying screenwriting. And I, what I love about the, the, the script is, is the, the callbacks that happen in the first half of the film and then are, you know, later repeated with great significance afterwards. So sure. I don't know if you recall, like the, the young boy, Joshua, you know, he wanted he, he was set up right away as not wanting to have a shower. You know, he put his foot down. No, I'm not dirty. I don't want to have a shower. And then obviously that pays off to great significance later in the film where, you know, had he gone to have a shower, had he liked showers, then that would have ended up in his total doom. So I did love the way that those um, initial things that were scripted paid off in a, in a significant way later on. And, you know, for my young filmmaker brain, that was a, a great way of, of writing story that, that payoffs that happened at the beginning that also occur later in the, in the film. Yeah. He's good at structure. He is. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, the, the film pays off on, on all of its promises and it's, I, I don't want to, I don't want you to feel that I'm trying to bring you around either. You're allowed, you're like, you're yeah. totally allowed to, to love what you love. Um, but I guess the, maybe it's simply that, I mean, I really wonder if it is that simple, if it's just that I'd seen his other movies and he does exactly the same thing mm-hmm. in each of them. The only difference is in Life is Beautiful that his character doesn't survive. Right. That he's, um, he's the martyr. Yeah. Uh, so for me, what, what I, why I picked this film was because, um, you know, what we're currently going through, this, this pandemic, is, um, you know, me as, a, as a, a dad to three young kids, like it's, uh, I find these parallels that are happening from, from that film into what we're going through now. So these... You know, my kids are forced to cut off all contact with their friends and they can't go to school and everything's closed. And it's a very dire situation, obviously, with the present state of the world, you know, even though it's, you know, slowly getting better and restrictions are easing. It's just that that time where it first started, my wife and I had to think on our feet pretty quick and and try to make this a, um, you know, a fun experience for these kids who were wondering why the world was going to hell. Yeah, Um, that's fascinating to me. Like the idea that there are real world analogies for this right now uh, that that so what did you yeah what did you do how did you um how oh, did you entertain said this pandemic is wonderful you know it allows us to spend all this time together we're going to do so many more family activities and um you know slowly our uh energy level waned a little bit as the days and weeks <laughs> went on so we weren't as as uh, joyous as guido might have been as towards his uh his young son but uh no, we tried to 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 make the pandemic a a, a time to, you know, work on crafts and uh, and and bond as a family and watch films together. So it, it's kind of been you know in a strange way kind of nice to spend that time together. And they 
they love coronavirus. They don't want the coronavirus to go away because now it's summertime and they can play outside and, and not go to school. Uh, so I don't know. I think we sheltered them from the, you know, perhaps the harsh reality of what was going on around the world. But, um, you know, maybe they're a little too young to understand and, and fully appreciate what the uh, time in history this is for, for the world. But, um, yeah, we tried to make it shelter them slightly so that they their outcome was a little more positive than you know, negative as to, as to what their parents might have thought. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, again, that is the central theme, really, of Life is Beautiful, is it hiding your terror from your own family, mm-hmm. from your own children, to, to give them the sense that everything is going to be okay, which mm-hmm. I guess is the base job of any parent. But how do you, how did you handle your own stress? I mean, uh, I, I don't have kids, and I was quietly freaking out uh, yeah. plenty in March and April. Yeah. I remember we were I, supposed to record this back then and you're like, oh, yes, that's maybe, right. Maybe don't come over now. <laughs> it was, a, it was, um, yeah, a difficult time for sure. My own stress. I don't know. As I think, I think as a, as a parent, you know, if you, if you ensure that your kids are feeling okay, that is a little bit reassuring. It feels like you're doing a, the right job. Um, but no, we would quietly freak out at, at night when, when the kids were in bed and that's when the news would go on and we'd, we'd watch all these, you know, sad atrocities, these medical uh, atrocities happening, happening all over the world. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just been, um, yeah. that's, yeah, I, I was going to say something clever about how the Holocaust would have been very different if they'd had the internet, but I'm pretty sure it would be exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, we haven't, yeah. we haven't changed. We're, we're seeing it happening right now in slow motion. Nothing, yeah. is, nothing is different. And I do get like uh, the criticisms. I know like Benini has been criticized for softening the Holocaust and, um, you know, I, and I think there, there are two ways to, to look at it. I mean, yes, the Holocaust was obviously a, an atrocity that happened uh, during the, you know, the 1940s or late 30s and 40s. But um, is, can, you, can you step aside and, and view this as not necessarily a Holocaust film, but more of a, a film about human triumph and, and the power of imagination? You know, I, I guess it depends on what, uh, how you're grew up. I know there are some Jewish friends of mine that uh, don't um, see the film the way I do, but I know a lot of um, Jewish people do as well. I mean, Benini worked with uh, the the, um, the Jewish Center in, in uh, Milan, I believe, when he was, uh, when he was working with, on the film and on the script and consulting and, and doing as much as research as he can, even though he's a, a Gentile, right? Um, mm-hmm. He still did his, his homework. I mean, I don't think this is a film that could be made today. I, I, with cultural appropriation uh, being in the forefront, I don't think Life is Beautiful could be made by a non-Jew in today's world. Um, so, I don't know. It's an interesting slice of life, um, uh, you know, created in a period where this was allowed, you know, um, even though it may not be allowed today. Yeah, I I do wonder about that, too. I, I think that on some level, and this is something that's come up a few times in in the past with uh, with films, that simply making a movie about the subject is presumed to be worthy. Like just mm-hmm. the fact that this is a film about a thing that an audience has a specific interest in. I mean, my parents are my parents who were both born well during World War II, actually in the in the early forties, uh, grew up with the Holocaust. Like they are, uh, both of my parents are Jewish, and I. I guess technically I am too, although I don't really practice at all. Um, both of my parents grew up steeped in the dread of yeah. the Holocaust, you know, never again, all of that. And the idea that people were suddenly making movies about the Holocaust in, in the 80s and 90s when it really started to pick up as a theme, as a topic, that was perceived as just a net positive. And the idea that there is a, a there, there are quote, there's a, the, that you could, qualitatively evaluate them within the Holocaust genre, that didn't, that was not an issue. It wasn't important. It was more important that the message was getting out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've got, um, for Schindler's List in the gray zone on one side, and then you've got Life is Beautiful and maybe The Boy in the Striped Pajamas on the other. And The, and the Boy in the Striped Pajamas probably wouldn't exist without Life is Beautiful, having already demonstrated that the, the sort of middle ground Holocaust movie that doesn't really, really go deep into the the specifics, details, the misery of it, and treats it more metaphorically or allegorically, was possible. But I just, in those cases, it just feels like the territory has been mined um, 
to better mm-hmm. purpose, I guess. Mm-hmm. But that again, this is just me refusing to budge, which is unfair to you. Yeah, because that's you okay. The I, I don't mind like going back and forth like this. It's not going to yeah. soften my uh, love for the film, because like, I do look at it more of as a joyous piece of uh, of cinema. Um, you know, when I when I look back at the film, I uh, I don't know. I just I love the, the the structure as well. So like you you mentioned earlier that Benini was great at structure, and um, we talked about how the film opens as a as almost a romantic comedy and all these these tropes that happen with uh, with Guido tr- trying to woo his his you know future wife uh, Dora um, you know all these uh, magical elements and um, her falling from the sky uh, into his arms and he uh, is established right away as sucking the beasting venom out of her leg so if you don't set up Guido as this uh, charming quirky clown um, you know, it's it's very necessary for him. I know he's over the top and people that might rub uh, a lot of first-time viewers the wrong way if you don't know much about Benini. But um, without that clown, that Chaplin-esque charm at the beginning of the film, like the the, the second half wouldn't have paid off as, as greatly. Like we wouldn't have understood that he had those skills to to be able to, you know, pay pay off um, and make this Holocaust thing a game for his, his son. So I think... Uh, you know, I, I totally understand how his uh, his, his joie de vivre and, and his uh, his outlook on life is is big and, and boisterous and like I said, it may rub people the wrong way, but it's absolutely necessary for when the uh, the second half of the the film kicks in. Yeah, and I think I'm being I'm giving too short a shrift to uh, Nicoletta Brasi, who who as Dora is wonderful. She's mm. you know, Benini Benini even. As an actor, I, I can't really fault him. He is doing exactly what that character needs to do, and, and he's pitched at the right level. And the idea that, you know, he can be as as boisterous as he is on screen and not, and have other people just not run away uh, is a question of tone that he actually manages to achieve. He he solves that problem, and, and you know, Brashi uh, relates to him like he's a real person rather than, a, a, you know, a man yeah. in a clown suit. And that's hugely important. And, and something that I always sort of push aside the, the, the actual accomplishments of the film just because it's, it represents, it's come to represent something that I don't yeah. really approve of. Yeah. But yeah, that first hour is pretty good. It's sweet and it's gentle and delicate. And, you know, it doesn't go full on Garden of the Finzi Contini's with the clouds gathering around mm-hmm. them. But you can feel that it won't last as well, which is something else that I think tonally he accomplishes. Yeah, there's an imp- impending dread throughout the film. Certainly, there's a uh, you know the, the spray paint on the the shop um, Guido shop that says yep. you know this is Jewish store, and then certainly the painting of the the horse, the uncle's horse, and and labeling labeling it as a Jewish horse. So there are these you know you don't get a lot of sense of the the Holocaust in the in the first half of the film, but there are like these hints that that pop out. Even one of a one of the minor characters uh, has sons named Benito and Adolfo. It's like yes. these, all these uh, these references to um, what's going to change in the Italian um, political sphere as it uh, as the film emerges. So, yeah. Um, and I remember hearing those and thinking, "Oh, that's of course there were kids named that. Those yeah. names weren't destroyed yet. They weren't yeah. forever associated with you know murder murderous dictators." <laughs> that's um, true. It's it's really it's the little things that that land much harder culturally within the film I think than they would have for me in '99 even, but the the sense that he's thought this stuff through it is, I mean it is a cheap laugh but it's also a really valid one it's a it's a it's the sort of gag that catches in your throat when you realize what it really means which those kind of yeah. get those don't go away in the second half but they get more strident they get more obvious because the stakes are established mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and that's where again that's where i start kind of resisting the film okay. because you know they're they're in a place with lice and typhus and and misery and and death mm-hmm. and the idea that yeah malnourishment's not that bad and you know they're managing that they're getting along the other problem i have with that is of course that i i'm reading that as benini's own indulgence which is the subtle suggestion that well you know Everybody else could have tried a little harder too, and that's just yeah. uh, you know, that's the problem I have with yeah. most of the Holocaust films that end with uh, with a with a victory of any kind, uh, with the, the exception, exception of Schindler's List, because it shows you just how hard won that victory was. I mean, yeah, it goes a little overboard with the speeches, but it's about what it takes out of people 
to survive. And this is, okay, Guido doesn't come out, but he also doesn't die on camera. He, mm-hmm. you know, get, that's, that's the directorial touch that, that I find throughout the film to be a little self-serving. Like, it, it's as though Benini just can't handle the idea that he might have to show himself die on camera or, or sustain injury or, or yeah. um, he creates it's self-mythologizing thing in a weird way you know not only yeah. was my father not only was my father the the greatest um, and cleverest and most romantic man but he also saved me from Nazis and for all I know he's still alive somewhere right running around in the night like the shadow yeah I guess well that's the you know even, <laughs> even Schopenhauer's philosophies like represented throughout the film or referenced in the film right so Schopenhauer was famous for the the, the will to live and uh, that's even quoted in, in the, the film at, at times I mean you know so I, a I, triumph I, I, of the will if you will yeah right so it's it's following that uh, that that theme of, of beauty and 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 turning the world into a uh, having a positive spin on the outlook on, on life to give you that will to live. And it's obviously the film borrows from the concepts of, of Schopenhauer and the idea that the in, internal can be focused on to produce, you know, results. Uh, and for the scene, um, Guido was talking to his friend Ferruccio and I think uh, I wrote down the quote somewhere. My, mess, oh. my writing is very messy, but... Uh, <laughs> That's okay. Um, uh, talk, oh, they're talking about Schopenhauer says that willpower, you can do anything. I am what I want to be. Right now I want to sleep, so I'm saying sleeping, sleeping, and I fall asleep. So I just love that have a, um, he can conquer or use Schopenhauer's philosophy to his own benefit and causing uh, you know, uh, Nicoletta Braschi to, to look at him and, and using his fingers. And the power of will to, to make things uh, happen for him is, uh, is, is a beautiful thing. Yeah, and absolutely, I mean... On that reading, he gets what he wants. He does. He saves their child, and and yeah, and it's that simple, Norm. That's how simple yeah. life can be I, if you just will it. Right? Yes. So um, it's about the secret. Is that what they called it? The uh, the book, the, the power of positive oh, the thinking. Power of the positive, the... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. For I don't know. Well, how do you? Um, what I, I I need to ask you now that I that sure. have you here. What is a joyous film for you? Like, what do you find to be a a joyous triumph of the human spirit well my default is always galaxy quest which is a little facetious yeah. in this case uh but i or is it I by think, nature like do, do critics have to you know i wonder actually yeah i was gonna say are not allowed um, to feel joy i think the movies that the movies that i gravitate to that are positive and uplifting experiences tend to have a lot of darkness in them like the first thing i thought of after galaxy quest was weirdly enough another movie from 99 was magnolia where it's about the tiniest shred of hope coming through. It's the crocus in the ash, right? It's the, it's the sense that or everything doesn't have to be as bad as it is if we just commit to being better people, better versions of ourselves. So a lot of my stuff is, a lot of the things that make me happy are movies where people really get put through the ringer. Three hours um, worth of that. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> weirdly enough, and I was also going to suggest the right stuff. Yeah. Which is about is three hours of people putting themselves yeah, through absolute hell in order to do something that isn't that important, really, but it is to them. I mean, historically, you could argue that, but the whole movie is, you know, that movie is about a race between one pilot to break the sound barrier and then do it again. And then a bunch of other pilots to simply be mannequins for giant machinery. And in both cases, they commit fully to their purpose. I, yeah, I guess I'm more, my uplift is more like people who survive extreme, either psychological or physical uh, ordeals and come out the other side as better people. Gravity, um, moonlight, things that I can't imagine doing myself, but then somehow I, I can connect to, I can relate yeah. to. I'm trying to think about others. I mean, uh, Lawrence of Arabia and Jaws are two of my favorite movies, and they're about individuals overcoming impossible odds yeah. i guess if you want to boil them absolutely down to that but they're not like um, joyous films you don't like smile through them and, and have a lovely like, the ending sure like there's a yeah experience, oh, you come but, out on a huge high but, but uh, gravity you're stressed um, the whole time and and like same with the right stuff you're you're stressed and, and full of uh tension the whole time but yeah but maybe uh, that's it you know like it's the it's the what is it the bdsm thing it feels so good when it stops okay uh <laughs> that might be my problem <laughs> Um, That's okay. yeah, well, I love, I love like seeing like, how different people like experience films different ways. So we, we're both bringing our own 
family baggage, I guess, to the to, oh, absolutely, the yeah, and they they reflect on each other different different ways. So I don't. That's why I don't mind like discussing this film with you because um, it's not going to change my viewpoint. But it's it's very oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. No, this isn't supposed to be an adversarial conversation yeah. at all. Um, I I I'm trying to think of other stuff. I mean, you know, I I love. This is again a film that you would not necessarily point to as an, as an uplifting, but Shaun of the Dead is yeah. a movie that makes me happy despite the fact that almost everyone in it dies horribly. <laughs> uh, again, it's the people who who make it through, yeah. who who get to be their best selves, who get to actualize. God, what yeah. else is there? There must be other movies that aren't this. Yeah, I turn to uh, I turn to horror a lot as uh, as escape. I guess that's part of it. But I was always a big horror fan as a kid, mm-hmm. and. and uh, the ones where, the ones where the threat feels real are the ones that feel the most exhilarating to me. Although, also a lot of them end with everybody dying. So that's <laughs> that. That means I should, I should like life is beautiful more. Yeah, I mean some other things that I remember throughout the the film that I kind of paid attention to as I watched it this last time around was uh, just the use of color. I mean the the. The beginning of the film, you know, it starts off with that foggy scene and then it cuts to the big, bright, sunny southern Italy or or is it northern Italy? I don't know specifically where it takes place, but Italy, the countryside, is, is full yes. of these gorgeous rolling hills and these tan uh, architecture. And um, it's certainly contrasted with the, the dark and uh, slimy and grimy Holocaust scenes. So, like, visually, yeah. the, pal- the palette is... is uh, consistent for the the film it's uh yeah well it's almost primary colors in the first hour isn't it yeah with all the flowers and beautiful uh flowers fruit vegetables there's always something in the corner of the frame that has a just a really pop uh that that really brilliantly pops out and distracts us and the um there's polka dots things like that i mean it it, he's he goes for very simple clear imagery and then all the color just goes away Like almost immediately, right? As soon yeah. as they arrive. As soon as they get on that train and they're... It's true. It's before they get there. It's on yeah. the train. It's all like browns and, and yeah. grays. Yeah. Yeah. He bought, he bought the last two tickets for the train. Come on. There are uh, no seats, but the, it's, a, it's a fun ride. Yeah. I love how every, uh, every aspect of Dread was, had, uh, had, was painted through that uh, positive lens for his, his kids. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then the, you know, I, the, there's a couple sour notes, you know, I'll, I'll admit them as well. Like when um, Guido's carrying this uh, very heavy anvil, um, you know, that was his time to break down. He was away from his son, but he was still playing the clown to the other people in line with him. So I right. think that was the one sour note that uh, that stuck out for me this time around. So I can, I can admit the film's flaws as well. But uh, yeah, it almost oh, yeah. seemed that that moment where he's carrying this heavy anvil, he didn't need to put on a game for himself and the other uh, people in the, in the concentration camp, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's, that's again, one of the things that just made me wonder if perhaps Benini hadn't thought it through as well. I mean, there are scenes that we see that, um, that the child just wouldn't know about. There's material where, yeah, you know, it's not that the film has to be airtight, that the illusion has to be airtight. Kids are dumb and they believe what you tell them. Um, But yeah, the filmmaking I don't know. I just it felt like there there were so many points in the film where it just felt like showiness, like the flourish of a director who really wants you to see what he's doing. So emotional and manipulation, again, that sort of thing, like overtly, yeah, yeah. emotionally, but also just in terms of well, just that's the scene in the the scene with the with the bodies is it's beautifully photographed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it looks really nice, which is probably not what you want from a pile yeah. of bodies, but. You know, it's the, did you notice what I was doing with the fog? Did you see what my cinematographer is capable of? Things like that, which it didn't pull me out of the movie because I was already braced for it since I'd seen it. It, it, it opened, the film opens with this image or a version of it. Mm-hmm. And it just, I don't know. I guess at that point I was already looking for problems. So that's my, that's the other yeah. thing. I had, I had checked out emotionally, I think, by that okay. point. And I do wonder if, had I not met him uh, years earlier... And also realize that his English is a lot better than it is when he's performing uh, in front of an interview camera where he's just putting on this, that, that thing extends. Yeah. And I think it's just he's a people pleaser and he wants to give people the thing that they want. And I get it. But yeah, I wonder if I would be less cynical about this particular film if I hadn't actually had the experience of spending half an hour with him and, and Brashi just Fascinating. seeing wow. who they are. She's nice. 
he's fine. I mean, he's not a bad person or anything, but I, I do think that yeah, like he found something successful and really leaned into it, and then it took him somewhere that I don't know that the persona was strong enough to uh, yeah. to support. Sure. But that I don't need to denigrate the accomplishments of everyone else who worked on the film and all the and all the things that it does fairly well. Yeah, fascinating. Okay, so if the if the yeah. actors were swapped, then perhaps it might have uh, had a different effect on you. Quite possible. Yeah, I'm I'm open to that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, and that's allowed. You can... You're you're allowed yeah. to do that. Okay. I mean, this hypothetical, who else would you cast? Like, who could, what actor in 1999 or even now could do that sort of thing um, without becoming maudlin or, yeah. or really, really obnoxious? The only person I can think of for an American remake, and, you know, they had Jacob the Liar with Robin Williams, which does not work um, yeah. because Williams was in that weird needy place where, like, not even, not even Benini goes there, where he's just so desperate to be loved by the audience that he takes roles like this and then right you know robin williams uh, as a dramatic actor could be incredibly great and and hyper laser focused you know like goodwill hunting or good morning vietnam or dead poet society he, he could be terrific but he needed directors who would sit on his chest and make him you know normalize his performance rather than just the, that little bit of bigness and desperation behind his eyes that you can sometimes see jacob the liar absolutely did that uh i thought of downey like Robert Downey Jr. maybe, mm. especially yeah. in 1999 as a young man, maybe. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Even then, I I'm not sure. Now I have, I have, no a, have idea. I seen him smile before. Like <laughs> Downey's very uh, straight faced and and uh, he's he's got a huge chip on his shoulder. I don't know if he could uh, pull off that joyous. Uh, well, maybe in his own way. Yeah, yeah. it would look frantic, right? Like yeah. it would look. You'd see the desperation. Yeah. But could this be remade into like a, a Hollywood film? Like I don't think you'd have that same. I don't know that. Yeah, I wonder. Uh, There's probably a way to do it that is, that makes it a metaphor that that takes it away from the Holocaust entirely. Right. Um, you know, they, you, you could do, do a Gattaca version of this. Sure. Where where everything is stylized and and intellectualized out of. Relevance, uh, I guess. Yeah, out of a time in history. Sure, I see what you're yeah. saying. I mean, yeah. uh, in a weird way, there's probably... Like, Terrence Malick's The Hidden Life is almost kind of about this. I mean, mm-hmm. It's the same sort of thing where the world is insane and you're the only person in there. You're the only person who's principled and trying to stand up to... Or trying to maintain your sense of reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a really weird leap and I don't think it works at all mm-hmm. beyond the immediate thought. But weirdly, that's what came to mind. Yeah. I don't know. Huh. I, um, I watched the film with my family the other night. Uh, my 10-year-old watched it for the first... It was her first foreign film, so she seemed to just not even notice the subtitles, so I think that's oh, yeah. a good sign of introducing her to films from other, from other countries. So it's, uh, it was nice to experience the, the viewing of the film through, those, that, through that lens as well. And I was just trying to pay attention of where um, uh, my wife and my daughter responded to the film. They, lo- they love the fact that... Uh, that young Joshua at the beginning is introduced holding a tank and that was his number one toy. He wanted everything. Uh, um, he wanted so much to, to experience a, a real tank. And at the end of the film, he finally gets that when the, uh, the American soldier picks him up at, after the, um, the war has ended and, and the Nazis have all left and this large tank just rolls in and the young boy's face lights up. And I think that was the moment where uh, you know, my my daughter lost it as well when she uh, when she saw the sacrifice that the father made and the uh, and the reaction that the kid actually got the the, the thousand point prize. So was, yeah. yeah, I did find myself wondering if they let him keep it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's gonna suck for him eventually. Like that's that's the other thing that sure. the film just isn't willing to to show us is the <laughs> the scene where the GIs yeah. tell him he can't keep the tank. Yeah. Oh, but maybe um, it's maybe it's parked somewhere and he can go visit it on weekends. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, and I'm pretty sure uh, I was looking at some like historical facts about the um, the Holocaust, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't the Americans who rolled in and, and liberated the uh, it was the the Russians, right? It was that was the part of the history the Russians, that I read. I, yeah, I think the Russians got to most of the camps first, although there were a couple of American uh, troop uh, platoons yeah. that liberated some in the to, like to the western the mm-hmm. westernmost camps. Um, but yeah, it's, again, you have to, uh, you, he's going with what he thinks people know, right? Like he's yeah. going with what, what the most familiar points are, which is reasonable. I mean, it's, it's a fictional film. You yeah. can 
you can take liberties. I mean, uh, Taika Waititi has Americans arriving in uh, in Berlin in in uh, Jojo Rabbit. Although I do think that's what happens. I think the Russians mm-hmm. were still on their way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, oh, Jojo Rabbit's another one where yeah, I was just going to say that. You know, you could make you could make the charge that it creates a comforting fantasy, but I think the film is. I don't know. I, I find it much more powerful, um, partially because we have the device of of having Hitler in the film and and the thing that, like, the people who don't like Jojo Rabbit give the film no credit for whatsoever, but it's Watiti modulating his performance as Jojo learns more about the Nazis and having Hitler go from a goofy best friend to a screaming bully as Jojo understands that and and the the other parallel tracks of, of mm-hmm. him learning more, which is the thing that that um, uh, Life is Beautiful just doesn't have. No one ever no one ever learns what's happening. Mm-hmm. The whole point of it is that Guido has to keep the secret, yeah, and enlist other people in it. And so you're just denied the possibility of the real darkness, mm-hmm. which I guess is part of the movie's appeal. It's it's a Holocaust movie that doesn't confront the horror. Um, yeah, but that's I think that's what put me off i think maybe you could make this movie well he i was going to say maybe you could make it before but not after schindler's list but obviously he did so that's not something i can say but i think if i'd seen it before the wave of more graphic and confrontational films or even before the documentaries started coming out uh then maybe but yeah i don't know just didn't it's fine (laughs) i couldn't do it are you familiar where the title comes from at least like life is beautiful and the the story behind that uh no i guess i'm not sure i do it's for uh through trotsky so trotsky uh was um he knew of his impending death through through stalin stalin was after him at the time and uh he was either going to die of his own um uh either being caught by stalin and executed or he was just he was in a, in a place where he knew his death was impending so he wrote um uh, uh, a line a couple of lines that would be published po- posthumously and he wrote something like um life is beautiful uh let the future generations cleanse it of all evil oppression and violence and enjoy it to the full so it's a, yeah. a phrase from a, a man who knew he was about to die at the hands of uh, an oppressor so I, I just i love that how that was taken from that part part in history and, and made it uh into the film that's yeah it's a pretty eloquent mm-hmm. epigram mm-hmm. so now your whole view on the film has changed <laughs> <laughs> well i mean i'm willing to consider a little <laughs> no, further no. And the, um, the whole chaplin-esque uh, thing with benini is that a, a turn on or a turn off to you well i mean again you'd it, it felt to me like he was trying for that reflected glory thing because yeah. chaplin made the great dictator and yeah. You know, say what you will about the ending of that film, which just turns into a speech, but still lands. Mm -hmm. It does feel like, and this is what I was saying at the beginning, it felt like after making a movie about a mobster and a movie about a sex murderer, where else do you go to find something horrible to inject sweetness into? And The Great Dictator is a great example of resistance in cinema uh, because it was produced before people knew the full horror. It was produced before America even entered the war. It was... It was a statement of purpose from an artist who decided that it would be really funny to piss Hitler off. Mm -hmm. And this feels like Benini literally deciding he wants to be Chaplin and to do that. And then he decided he wanted to be Disney and make Pinocchio and that. I mean, that doesn't work at all. That doesn't work out well. No. No. But that's, but you know, you see that in, in. the blank check form, right? The idea that you've made this movie, you've won an Oscar for it, two Oscars, I think. You you can do whatever you afford and win score as well. But it, it, yeah. you've made this film that's critically um, acclaimed for the most part and financially successful and it's won awards and it's your turn to do the thing you want to do. And he went and made maybe the worst adaptation of Pinocchio I've ever seen because he wanted to play the role himself. And a balding 50-year-old Italian man in short pants running around screaming is terrifying, not adorable. (laughs) And the fact that he didn't understand that, that he didn't realize it wouldn't work. And then, you know, I don't know if you've seen the the Breckenmeyer dub version that Miramax released where they, they, they released an English language dub where Breckenmeyer voiced Benini and... I would love to sit Breckenmeyer down and talk about that someday because yeah. his solution to how do you voice this character is fascinating because it's 
inhuman. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's worse. It's actually worse than the dub, than the than the than the original Italian voice yeah. that Benini supplies. Because that- Meyer is trying to find a visual, an audio analog to the visual thing that this man jumping up and down and flailing, and it's just it's it's hypnotic, but it is terrible. After that, uh, after that Pinocchio debacle, uh, I can't remember the last thing Benini was in. Um, what? Oh, uh, he, where has he surfaced since? He showed up in something. Oh, what was? It? I'm just going to stop and look it up because otherwise I will just stammer my way through it. Oh yeah, here it is: the Tiger in the Snow. Oh um, yeah, which is uh, that didn't another. Do well either. He directed it, and again, it's it's him choosing something really terrible to make a yeah. romance out of. Because it's set during the invasion of Iraq, mm-hmm. and he's a wacky Italian poet who yeah. falls in love and gets trapped in the middle. And you know, by this point, his the device. I'm, I'm back thinking about the thing he told me in 1993, I guess, which is that he makes movies where the audience wants to see him fall in love with Nicoletta, and that is what happens. And that's true. That happens in all of them, except Pinocchio, where she plays the blue fairy. And by this point, it's just like. All he's ever done is redress the set. Like he's he's yeah. taken the basic premise, and in Life Is Beautiful, by having the romance be the least important thing about the movie, that's actually smart and clever. Mm-hmm. And then he just went right back to the same structure of of yeah. you know we fall in love amidst blank. It becomes like a Mad Libs game that he's playing with himself, and it's just eh, less mm-hmm. interesting to me. Um, what you're saying kind of re- reminds me of one of the the riddles in the film. So you know uh, the German doctor says, um, "If you speak my name, I vanish. What am I?" And the answer is, is silence. So Benini and this uh, this this doctor, this German doctor, are always playing a riddle game. So that reminds me, like when if um, Benini, the the actor, is is doing all these grandiose projects to make him stand at the center of the. Uh, of the um, of the film and lay it all on his shoulders, you know. If you speak his name too much, he's going to vanish himself, and that seems like what he what he did. I wonder. He's yeah. apparently playing Geppetto in a new production of Pinocchio. Oh, he loves that story, doesn't he? <laughs> wow. Yeah, uh, I I can actually see that working. He has the right energy for Geppetto, yeah. especially now that he is older. Yeah, I mean, he's got to be pushing seventy, mm-hmm. right? Like he was born in the fifties, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, I would be I would be willing to watch that. Okay, good. So there you go. You brought yeah. me around. Yeah, and having shot a film in in Italy recently, like I mean, I know that the the the, the actors love to communicate with their hands, and it's very they're very impassioned when they speak. Everything's very fast, and um, it's it's very much of a ping pong back and forth between talking to Italians and, and, and non-Italians or trying to figure each other out, but they, they do it much more passionately and with their hands and physically. So um, I can understand, like, you know, if you, if you don't come from that Italian heritage, uh, like I do, like it may be difficult to get in the, the mindset of watching someone like Benini portray like a, an Italian on screen. That's just the right. way they, they communicate. Not so much yeah, in the I mean, neorealist films in the 40s, but uh, certainly the Italians of today love... Um, love their to get their point across in the most yes. flourishy type of way possible yes gesticulatory i think yes. is how i've heard it said <laughs> which i which sounds great yeah. uh, but to that end i mean um you've shot a film in italy you've made a number of features uh is there anything from life is beautiful that you have borrowed or stolen or lifted or, or just full-on homaged is there something that uh, stuck with you there no I, don't, I can't see any necessarily themes that that resonate between the the two films i mean other than the importance of family to 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 get through a challenging time mm-hmm. um but that's just a very i'm i'm trying to grasp grasping at straws for uh for similarities but no i mean the the Anywhere you point a camera in Italy is going to look gorgeous. Um, no disrespect to our cinematographer who did an amazing job, but uh, Italy is just a, a painting every way, everywhere you look at it or everywhere you point the camera. Um, and so, yeah, making use of the natural landscape um, for those pops of color and the, and the sun and the perfect light. So, yeah, those are the, the elements that I took with. And using the... Um, and the importance of music. It, obviously, Italy has a huge tradition of, of of great music coming out of their their composers, and uh, you know we this our film being a co production between Canada and Italy. That's what co productions are. They're it's a natural split of labor between two countries to make one singular product. And uh, 
and um, working with an Italian composer. And our film is about wine, and he used uh, wine bottles and, and tapped uh, bottles for the melody and, and to create a, um, a beautiful melodic sound using wine and um, using bottles and shaking them to use the make a percussion sound. So it was a really cool way to, to experience, um, put a little flavor of Italy in the, in the sonic appearance in the film as well. Nice. And I, I was thinking about Kiss and Cry, which sort of plays a similar trick on an audience mm. that, that Life is Beautiful plays on the characters where the thing, that we're, the reality that we've been watching is actually more real than we're led to believe. Um, and I don't want to get into it because I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen the film, but it, you, you took a very simple biographical story and added something from the beginning, it's there the whole time, we just don't know it, that is utterly devastating. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I remember watching the film and just keep gasping at the audacity and that it worked is even yeah. better. Uh, so people listening to this should really just stop, go see it. We, we won't discuss it. I don't want to ruin it. But it's the same kind of daring to me as I'm going to make a, a love story about the Holocaust. It's like, it, it doesn't connect, but it does. You, you know what I mean? I was just wondering if maybe somehow Life is Beautiful prepared you for that kind of conceptual leap, which, you know, you knew it could be done if you, if you committed. Huh. Yeah. Um, well, now this is what I do. I just, you know, I wonderful. pull stuff. Yeah, no. Um, I, and as we've just, you know, spent the last hour talking about this, uh, the, the film, um, Life is Beautiful. Yeah. I can kind of see the parallels more in that film than the, uh, the one I shot in, in Italy <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Maybe just put um, you on the, on course. Yeah. Now, now it's, it's like when you, uh, you're, you're told a secret, like a family secret that you haven't heard uh, ever, and now you're trying to process that. And so you've, <laughs> you've just done that to me. Now I've got to sit back and think about, uh, yeah, uh, any other parallels from film history that I've kind of put in my other projects as well. I love oh, hearing cool. other people talk about projects and how it uh, makes you think back and, uh, and, and over the course of your, uh, your life as well and what little things that happened in, in your life to put into your film, so... Yeah, thank you for that uh, bit of personal psychology here. My thanks to Sean Cisterna, whose new movie, From the Vine, is available this Friday, July 10th, on digital and on demand. And take the time to check out Kiss and Cry, which is streaming on Netflix. Oh, and so is Full Out. You can find Sean on Twitter at Sean Cisterna, all one word, and you can find Life is Beautiful on Blu-ray and DVD from Lionsgate in the U.S. and Alliance in Canada. It's also available on Apple TV, because that's what we call iTunes now, and streaming free on Hoopla. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days in addition to my film writing duties. Check them out. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show, say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. I've been catching up to Hot Plate, Mirella Amato and Joshna Maharaja's podcast about the landscape of food and drink, and it's pretty good. Stay inside, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out. I'll see you next week. <laughs>